This classic Encounters podcast is brought to you by Encounters North. To learn more about our podcast videos and projects and to support our work, please visit EncountersNorth.org. <laughs> this has got to be the craziest thing yet. <laughs> Hi, I'm Richard Nelson for Encounters, a program of observations, experiences, and reflections on the world around us. Anybody who's lived or traveled in the bush country of Alaska will immediately recognize this sound. From the interior forest to the Arctic tundra, this whining chorus is the anthem of sleepless nights. It's the mantra of pure misery, the theme song of exasperation. And let me tell you, I am feeling all of those at the moment while I'm in the midst of the most extraordinary horde of mosquitoes I've seen in many a year. Koyukon Indian people, whose country I am in today. People whose villages stand along the Yukon and Kaikuk rivers here in interior Alaska tell sacred stories called Kadonsedni, and they explain the beginnings of the world. According to these stories, everything around us was created by Dotsonsa, the great raven. While the raven was busy shaping and reshaping the world, a man, a human, came along and stole the raven's wife. Raven got really mad about this, and he found an old dry chunk of wood. I got one laying right here on the ground next to me, and I can pick it up like the raven did, and he pulverized this wood, and he made it into a handful of dust, and he threw that big cloud of wood dust up into the air, and those billions of particles instantly became mosquitoes, and they have tormented humankind ever since. Just as they are tormenting me right now, I look down at my pant legs and I imagine there's at least a hundred mosquitoes crawling around on the left leg and looks like maybe 150 of them on the right hand side. Well, I'm in some really good mosquito country today. I'm up in the Brooks Range, standing right next to the emerald waters of the Alatna River, looking across at high wall of mountains standing up into a clear blue sky. One of the greatest wild places in North America or anywhere in the world, the gates of the Arctic National Park. And on the kind of day that anybody with any sense at all would just dream of being here. Perfect summer day with the one minor imperfection of these things that are buzzing around me by the millions. Mosquitoes are found almost everywhere in the world. There's more than 3,000 species of mosquitoes on the planet, about 200 species in the United States. But experts say that there is no place on earth that can match the far north for the sheer abundance of mosquitoes, especially Alaska's tundra, which may have the most spectacular biting hordes anywhere in the world. Well, when the mischievous great raven looks down at us today here in the interior of Alaska, he ought to be really proud of his handiwork because he's done well indeed. In fact, actually, as I look up at the spruce trees behind me, there are two ravens sitting there looking down at me right now, one in the very peak of this tall spruce and the other one kind of perched on a branch just a couple of feet below that one. They've been making a little bit of noise, as you can hear in the background. One just flies out right now straight toward me. 
up over my head. You hear the wing beats? Turns back around, flies back toward the tree. Looks like it's going to land again. Well, nobody's sure how many kinds of mosquitoes live here in Alaska, but they guess probably 20 to 30 species. Mosquitoes are found everywhere in the state of Alaska, but they're most abundant in the sprawling flatlands here in the interior of Alaska, like along the valley of the Halatna River and up in the Arctic. The reason for this, enormous amounts of standing water that collects in millions of lakes, ponds, puddles, sloughs, and in all the saturated muskegs and bogs. This is the world's most perfect breeding grounds for mosquitoes, and man, it looks like they've been busy around here. Most Alaska mosquitoes will lay their eggs in the late summer or fall. The eggs or the larvae stay dormant all winter long. Now they're either in water or they're in a moist depression. And as the water warms up early the following summer, the mosquitoes will hatch and develop as they're doing right now in the latter part of June here in the interior. One major exception to this overwintering of eggs and larvae is Alaska's biggest mosquito species, often called the snow mosquito. Those big mosquitoes spend the winter as adults in the leaf litter underneath the snow. There's a lot of that kind of leaf litter around me right here. And in fact, as I brush down through it, I can see that it's very moist, probably the kind of place where snow mosquitoes spend the winter underneath the snow. They'll also get down in dead stumps or under tree bark, places like that. Now these are the big, slow, clumsy ones that are familiar to anyone who's in Alaska in the late spring and early summer. They're rarely quick enough to bite you. They sort of clunk down and mess around as if they can't quite decide what to do. And they often get swatted before they actually manage to get their drop of blood. During the summer mating season, which gets underway about now, the male mosquitoes will gather into swarms, sometimes just a few of them, sometimes many thousands of them. And if a female mosquito happens to fly into that swarm, the male's antennae will pick up the very distinctive whine of her wings. One male mosquito eventually will seize hold of her and they will mate in midair. Now after the female mosquito lays her eggs in the water, they'll hatch into larvae that look sort of like tiny little shrimp. They lay on the surface and they've got a little microscopic breathing tube or a siphon that pokes up through the surface of the water into the air and that's what they breathe with. They feed on microscopic organisms in the water. We've all seen what those mosquito larvae do when they are disturbed. They'll dive down by wiggling their bodies back and forth and that's why they're often called wigglers. After a week or more, the larva transforms into a pupa stage. These are called tumblers because they move by gyrating their head and tail, kind of tumbling around in the water. They last only a few days and then they transform into the typical flying adult. And man, I've got a lot of those adults not only flying around me right now, but crawling all over my body. It's an amazing and sort of claustrophobic feeling. They're whirling all around my face, all around my head and my ears. Now I can easily tell that these mosquitoes that are busy with me right now are females. The males are very easy to recognize because they have the broad feathery antennae, quite conspicuous, and if you look close you'll see they don't have any stinger at all. The male mosquito does not bite. It feeds only on plant juices and on flower nectar. The females also eat plant juices, but in order to produce eggs, that female mosquito has to have the nutrients that she can only get 
from a sip of blood. And that's where we come into the picture. They usually will bite birds or mammals. Some of them will also bite cold-blooded animals. The female only bites once per batch of eggs. Then after her eggs are laid, she'll start flying around looking for another blood meal so she can do it all over again. Well, how the heck do mosquitoes find us? First of all, it's by sight. They see us moving around. Mosquitoes that feed in the daytime, they're particularly good at seeing dark things. So it's wise to wear light-colored clothing. I'm kind of an experiment for that right now. I'm wearing dark-colored blue jeans, and they are just covered and surrounded by mosquitoes but I've got a really bright white shirt on and there are almost no mosquitoes up here around my shirt. When the mosquito gets closer to you, her slender hair-like antennae will pick up the carbon dioxide and moisture from your breath. She'll also sense your heat. She'll sense your bodily odor, your scent. And she follows these clues upwind. And that's why you might sometimes notice a little flock of mosquitoes on your downwind side. They're all collecting there as they followed the breeze up toward you. Mosquitoes become active when the temperature reaches about 45 degrees. That's why on a chilly morning you don't see them around. And then their activity will increase until the temperature is about what it is here where I'm standing now, right around 68 degrees. Then as it gets warmer than that, they'll become less active. There's a little bit of a sandbar right in front of me. If I walk out onto that sandbar, there's fewer mosquitoes, in fact, almost none out there because it's quite a bit warmer there in the sunshine and also because there's some breeze out there. Mosquitoes quickly get grounded if it's windy at all. Incidentally, on this sandbar in front of me, fresh tracks of a big moose that was moving between one patch of willows and another. And then there are tracks of a big wolf, huge paw prints, almost as big across as my hand. And most amazingly, woven among all these other tracks are the fresh tracks of a wolverine. When I first came along, I thought they were the tracks of a small bear and then took a closer look, a broad front foot and a narrow long hind foot, five toes, classic prints of a wolverine, the ultimate animal of the northern wildlands. Well, coming back to the subject of mosquitoes, researchers do believe it's true that many kinds of mosquitoes are more attracted to certain people than to others, probably because of the individual combinations of chemicals in our skin. Some of us happen to smell appetizing to mosquitoes and some lucky people don't. Well, how does a mosquito's stinger work? It's a tiny, flexible tube and it has six separate feeding parts. Two of those parts have serrated tips and they're like little teeny saws that can saw right down through your tender skin. There are other parts that inject saliva from the mosquito and this saliva has an anticoagulant. It keeps your blood from coagulating so that she can suck it up like a hypodermic needle through that stinger of hers. Her injected saliva incidentally is what makes you itch and swell after you get bit by a mosquito. The mosquito's little abdomen swells up with a drop of your blood. It contains about a millionth of a gallon. Now for some reason, I guess I didn't get bugged up right here at the base of my index finger. And just for the sake of science, I'm gonna watch this mosquito for a minute. Hey, there's one on my thumb too. Ah, sorry, had to end the experiment. She was drilling down and I got that twinge that instinct just tells you, hey, I gotta, get, <laughs> I gotta do something about this. If I'd let her go, her little abdomen would have started swelling up. Isn't it fun sometimes? <laughs> Did you do that when you were a kid? Watch that little red bulge start to grow in the mosquito's belly. 
I think it's a mystery why one spot and another just a few miles apart will have a great difference in mosquitoes, but there is one general formula for a big mosquito season. That's when it's unusually warm in April and May, and there's normal rainfall during those months. And then June comes along, and it's warm, but it's dry. When that happens, you better get out that bug dope and mosquito netting. Well, of all the parts of Alaska, the North Slope is the one that has a reputation for the huge number of mosquitoes, clouds upon clouds of them. One Alaskan entomologist was quoted as saying that a person on the Arctic Slope with no repellent and lots of exposed skin at the right time of year could die within three hours from loss of blood. Standing here right now with, I would guess, a thousand mosquitoes around me and trying to imagine what if I was standing here in my swimming suit without any bug dope on, I can imagine that I would lose a lot of blood in a hurry and certainly lose my mind very quickly. Well, nobody ever forgets a really bad mosquito year. My friend Dave Mills was telling me he was up on the Kobach River one summer with a bunch of people, early July. There were so many mosquitoes that the backs of their shirts turned black because they were covered with mosquitoes. So they did a scientific experiment to see if we slap each other on the back, let's see how many mosquitoes we can get. And he told me that the record underneath one human hand was 130 dead mosquitoes. In the late 1970s near the village of Huslia, where I was living, a little south of the Arctic Circle, not far at all from where I'm standing today, I went out with a woman, an elder Koyukon lady named Lydia Simon, and when we left the village in a boat, we forgot to take the bug dope with us. There were huge swarms of mosquitoes buzzing around us. I remember them beating against my face and hands, clinging to my cheeks, to my ears, my eyes, my lips, everywhere. I inhaled so many mosquitoes that day that I'd quit trying to spit them out and just swallowed them when they got in there. It was hopeless to try to brush those mosquitoes away because it would be like trying to brush away the snowflakes in a blizzard. You couldn't stop them from biting. Eventually I just got absolutely claustrophobic and kind of started to panic. And I understood in those moments the stories that you hear of people who are driven completely mad by mosquitoes who have died from the torment of mosquitoes when they had no way to escape or protect themselves from it. Well, on that day, Lydia Simon solved our problem. She found coffee cans in the boat, put wire handles on them, the kind of thing you put over the campfire to cook your coffee or tea, and we half-filled those coffee cans with dry, punky wood, that stuff that the raven used long ago to create mosquitoes in the first place. We started a smoldering fire in there, and then she said, now put green grass on top of it, make more smoke, and we carried around those tin cans full of this smoking punky wood and grass. We also put a certain kind of bracket fungus that grows only on birch trees. Well, Lydia Simon told me that mosquitoes are called teeth in the Koyukon language. She said in the years before people got bug repellent in the villages, they would carry smudges around like the ones she had made. They'd carry those around with them all through the summer when there were a lot of mosquitoes. Lydia and other teachers like Catherine Atlet in the village of Huslia described to me houses that they used to make that were covered with bark, and they would leave open slots between the big slabs of bark on the sides of those houses. People could keep constant smudge fires going, especially on those miserable summer evenings when they couldn't escape the bugs. They would go there and just stay inside around the smoke, and that would keep the mosquitoes away from them. 
Well, for Koyukon people, of course, mosquitoes offer the perfect way to measure or to metaphorically describe any kind of abundance. You might hear somebody say in the Koyukon language, It means outside. In other words, in the lower 48 states, they say that people are as thick as mosquitoes. Well, yeah, maybe one good thing about having mosquitoes here in Alaska is that they help to keep this place from getting as crowded as it is down there in those other states. Well, nowadays, of course, Alaskans and people everywhere have very effective ways to protect themselves from mosquitoes, but each of those ways has both advantages and disadvantages. The first approach is the one that I'm using at least partly today. Wear long, thick pants like these blue jeans I've got on, a nice, thick, long sleeve shirt, white color is good, and wear a head net if you want to. I don't like head nets very much. They obscure your vision, but man, they sure keep the bugs from beating on your face as they're doing with me right now. Then, of course, there's the huge array of repellents, and among them all, the best ones so far are the ones that contain a chemical compound called DEET. Now, when I pick up my little bottle, it says DEET stands for N-N-Dethyl-M-Tualamide. And I got a little container of it right here on the ground. It's pretty amazing stuff. There we go. DEET was developed by government scientists for the military back in the 1940s. It didn't really become widely available for everybody else until the late 1950s. And man, I can remember when it came out and we threw away the citronella and picked up the DEET. About 20,000 different compounds have been tested for their ability to repel insects and DEET is by far the most effective and long-lasting if you read the scientific research. But many people find DEET repellents unpleasant and caustic. You know, they'll even eat away at plastic. Researchers caution, you're supposed to use minimal amounts of DEET, especially on children. Use small doses and pick the repellents that have very low DEET content, 20% or less. And be aware of this. Medical studies show you should avoid being around DEET and pyrethroids at the same time. What are pyrethroids? That includes the common insecticide pyrethrin. And there are natural pyrethroids in powdered flowers that are used to make mosquito coils. So researchers say avoid being around DEET and those pyrethroids at the same time. Nowadays, of course, there are lots of repellents that are made from various plant oils and extracts. Apparently the best ones so far from reading the research are the repellents that contain various mixtures of citronella oil, geranium, peppermint, lemongrass, rosemary, cedarwood, catnip, and or lavender. I've read lots of the research that compare those repellents with DEET. It seems from the research that all of those, or at least many of those kinds of repellents, do work in varying degrees, but none of them last nearly as long as DEET. I'm actually trying out a couple of them that sounded best. When I came out here today, I put on one that is comprised mainly of oil of lemon eucalyptus. Tried another one that is made with coconut oil and 
geranium and lavender and several other plant substances. Smelled really good. Tried an Australian one that's made principally with tea tree oil. Some Aussie friends gave that to me when I was over there. Let me tell you, when I put that stuff on yesterday, it was like putting salsa on a taco. Mosquitoes seemed to come from miles around just to taste that stuff. And I have to say, when I came back here in this alder thicket, I finally gave up and I squirted on the DEET because the other stuff I had been trying just does not work nearly as well. At least not on this body. And you got to remember though that what doesn't work very well for one person might work really well for somebody else. So don't take my word for it. Try them for yourself. How do repellents work anyway? You know this is interesting. It isn't that the bugs find that your repellent smells bad or tastes bad. In fact, the deal is that mosquito repellents contain molecules that interfere with the bug's sensory system or antennae. They block their ability to sense heat or moisture or carbon dioxide and the other chemical clues that lead them to you. So basically they lose track of you and they go somewhere else. There are lots of other approaches, of course, to killing insects or driving them away. Many kinds of devices that make high-pitched sounds. Scientific research on those things indicates that they are completely ineffective. In fact, some of them whine at a pitch that will literally attract female mosquitoes. How about the electronic bug zappers that we've all seen and heard? Studies show that they do not kill very many mosquitoes and that about 95% of the bugs that get fried in those zappers are either harmless or beneficial. Scientists do not recommend that we use bug zappers. There are the new propane-powered mosquito traps. The rumors that I've heard on the street say that they work really well for a little area like your back deck. The best way, they say, to minimize mosquitoes around your house or yard have as little standing water as possible. Pick up those old tires, clean the gutters, empty the wading pool, dump out the buckets full of rainwater. Do what you can to keep a dry environment around your place and you'll have fewer mosquitoes. Well, although mosquitoes here in Alaska are mainly a nuisance, in many parts of the world they're a pretty serious problem because they carry diseases like malaria, yellow fever, dengue fever, encephalitis, and others. Female mosquitoes can pick up a disease like those in one animal's blood and then she'll inject it with her anticoagulant saliva into another animal and maybe that's you or me. There are estimates that before the introduction of insecticides around 1950 diseases carried by mosquitoes may have caused about half of all human deaths. So we're lucky that here in Alaska so far mosquitoes do not transmit any serious diseases. Oh just listen to that Swainson's thrush behind me singing in the top of a spruce tree. And of course, we've been hearing all along those ravens and occasionally a white-crowned sparrow that's been singing across the way in the willows. Well, although Alaskan mosquitoes so far don't carry serious diseases, there is a lot of concern that the West Nile virus could reach Alaska. That disease has quickly spread across the United States, carried by mosquitoes, up into central Canada. It can be fatal to people. It has also really decimated some bird populations that mosquitoes often feed on. The worst of all, West Nile is extremely dangerous to members of the family that includes crows, jays, magpies, ravens. In some cities around the U.S., 
crows have almost disappeared because of West Nile virus. West Nile also seriously affects hawks and many, many other species of birds. Well, luckily there's no evidence yet of any West Nile virus in people or birds here in Alaska. In fact, some people think that the biology of birds and mosquitoes just isn't right for the virus to get this far north. But we do have, in Alaska, mosquito species that can carry West Nile virus. And we also do get migratory birds in Alaska that are affected by the virus outside of the state. So time will tell whether it gets here or not. Well, of course, mosquitoes are not the only bugs that find dinner by probing our tender, furless hides. You can hear the horse flies or deer flies that are around me right now. They've been doing this the whole time. They're driving me a little bit nuts. They're especially common near water. Of course, I've got the Alatna River right here in front of me. Big, buzzing, noxious bugs, but pretty easy to swat, thank goodness. Again here, only the females will dine on your blood, but if they do get you, you get a painful bite, it causes a round red welt. There are also the tiny little biting midges that Alaskans usually call noceums. Many species of noceums in Alaska, but only a few of them bother people. Like mosquitoes, noceum males live mainly on plant sugars, and only the females are out here after your blood. They can be a pretty serious nuisance when they swarm around you on a summer evening. However, noceums and horseflies are really minor nuisances compared to the small but formidable black flies. We here in Alaska usually call them white socks or gnats. Tiny little things, squat shape, rounded wings, and they got a humped sort of a shoulder or back. They look a little bit like a tiny buffalo. In fact, sometimes they're called buffalo flies. Koyukon people in Huslia years ago told me, when the gnats show up, you're going to wish you had the mosquitoes back. I found that idea absolutely inconceivable, but man, did it ever turn out to be true. When August came around, dry, hot weather, the gnats literally drove everybody indoors. The village looked like it was abandoned. There was less movement in the village of Huslia when the gnats were out than there had been the winter before when it was 50 below zero. They land on your clothes. Those little white socks, they'll crawl up your sleeves, they'll crawl up your pants legs, they'll crawl down your neck, they'll be up underneath your hat. The bite makes a little round red crater and it swells up and it itches like crazy. Some people are especially sensitive to white socks bites. They swell up, you'll see people with puffy eyes, eyes swollen almost shut from the bites of those nasty little bugs. Well, it's important to say that there's an upside to all this because mosquitoes and their other biting compatriots also have a valuable place here in the northern world. They're important for pollinating plants. Trillions of mosquitoes flying around from one flower to the next. They help to pollinate those flowers. They help to create in that way the rich vegetation communities that make it possible for us to have so many other animals that depend on those plants. Caribou, moose, deer, bears, wolves, muskox, etc. Also at every stage of their life, mosquitoes are an important part of the food chain and the water, the larva and the pupa stages of mosquitoes provide immense quantities of food for aquatic insects and fish and birds. And here in the air, I've got flying back and forth three dragonflies. They're called Tlihahona in the Koyukon language. It means mosquito eater. They're another animal that depends on mosquitoes. Also small critters like frogs and toads eat mosquitoes. And as we listen to this beautiful 
singing, chiming, Swainson's thrush behind me. I'm reminded to say that mosquitoes are a major reason why every summer millions and millions of birds come to Alaska from every continent in the world to raise their young here. They eat literally tons of mosquitoes. And so we might say that the beautiful songs of our summer birds are a gift to us from all these mosquitoes, even though we may hear those bird songs against the backdrop of whining mosquito wings. Well, for Encounters, I'm Richard Nelson. I want to thank you so much for keeping me company here in this thicket full of jillions of mosquitoes in the Brooks Range in northern Alaska on this summer afternoon. Looks like I'm going to have some scratching to do. I'll see you next time. Encounters is a production of KCAW in Sitka, Alaska. This program was written and narrated by Richard Nelson, edited by Ken Fate, produced by Lisa Bush. Theme music by Outback. Encounters is funded by the National Science Foundation and by the Kenneth Johnson Foundation, Alaska Conservation Foundation, Jerry Tone, Martha Wyckoff, Sue Cohn, the Skaggs Foundation, and the Scott A. Nathan Charitable Trust. For more information about the show, visit us online at EncountersNorth.org.